Hey, Yat, welcome to the show, NFT High Podcast. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, we've been hearing so many things about Animoca brands and all the, the moves that you guys have been making. Um, so I thought it would be awesome to have you on here um, since we uh, kind of touched base with your crew way back uh, in the new year. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, for our fans and the followers here. Great. Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, so a little bit background on, I guess, um, ourselves and our company. So I myself, uh, I'm the chairman and co-founder of Animoca Brands. And we really, uh, even though I've sort of been in the space for a while, when it comes to non-fungible tokens and crypto in general, we really got involved with it actually in 2017, when we were involved with a company called Fuel Power, whose, whose co-founder ended up becoming one of the co-founders of Dapper Labs. And uh, sort of that was sort of a front row seat that we had in terms of the de development and the evolution of you know, what was CryptoKitties as one of perhaps the first big use cases of non-fungible tokens. And uh, in that experiment, which is really what it started out really as an experiment before it kind of just blew up, but we saw that opportunity and we said, you know, we, like, we need to go all in on this. And in January, 2018, we became the publishers of CryptoKitties in our part of the world. So just to give you an idea, and of course, then we ended up also becoming investors in, in Dapper Labs and a variety of other sort of non-fungible token related companies. And, you know, we had a background originally as a gaming company, um, Animoca itself before it morphed into Animoca Brands was actually a fairly big mobile game developer. And in the early years, we saw the opportunity of what sort of mobile games represented when we sort of evolved from pay to free to play, basically with mobile games. Uh, and now actually we see the potential of obviously play to earn and true ownership, what that meant. You know, over the course of time, we have now done over 60 investments in the non-fungible token space. But of course, ourselves, we have a series of products that we are sort of developing and producing ourselves, including sort of our ownership in the sandbox or developments like F1 Delta Time or Gamey or Quid or Tower. So, you know, and I think one way to think about this is kind of a model that is not sort of dissimilar for many Asian companies, which is kind of mini conglomerate stuff. Mm -hmm. We make lots of investments but we also produce our own products and we make many partnerships. And it's kind of like sort of a, a very collaborative style of business making, which is quite different from a Western perspective or maybe the MBA school of thinking, which has been more about sort of controlling and sort of you know, controlling a particular domain and being uh, sort of you know, what they describe as core expertise. But I think, I think that model at least suits us better in the way that we are currently operating. And I think also because we think of ourselves as helping build the ecosystem. Okay. And it's very hard to build an ecosystem when you're only focused on building your own thing, because ultimately somehow inadvertently, you might want to be the ecosystem. Right. And so if we start investing very broadly, then the ecosystem success becomes our success. We can probably be sort of better, better players in the space is kind of how we think about it. Wow, that, that's a great explanation. Uh, so what was it that you saw early on like you're talking 2017 that was you know almost four years ago uh, it was almost natural i guess coming in from mobile but did you foresee this revolution nfts well i wouldn't say that i foresaw necessarily nfts per se as a revolution what i foresaw as a revolution was um, digital ownership okay and i think as time went on that idea of digital ownership just crystallized right so I would say that in 2017, 2018, it felt right, right? And then towards the end of 2018, 2019, you know, the thinking around it really crystallized as to what truly does digital rights mean to us? 
And so I think the thing that is a little different, I mean, my personal background is, uh, you know, I grew up in Austria, so I was very much sort of, you know, as a Chinese person in Austria, growing up in the 70s, I was definitely sort of, uh, sort of looking things uh, very much from, from sort of, um, I guess, the inside out, perhaps, mm -hmm. right? Because, because I, was, uh, I was an outsider, but I, you know, German is my mother tongue, so I was very oh. comfortable, you know, I just, I grew up there, right? So, so from, from that perspective, I, I was very local, you could say, but I didn't look it, right? So I guess in that sense, I had a slightly sort of different perspective on things just because I was sort of sitting on the outside. Uh, and I think, I think one of the things that uh, sort of had an impact on me a little bit was this sort of idea of sort of identity. Mm -hmm. And I discovered sort of identity very early on when I was online, back then using a service called CompuServe, which probably many people in your podcast might not even know what that is, right? Hey, I know it, was, so they better know. Okay, wow. Okay, so I guess we're all dating ourselves. But anyway, yeah. you know, a pre-internet bulletin board system that was essentially the beginnings of virtual communities. And I actually ended up getting my career in technology through writing software and having maybe public domain software and getting discovered that way. And nobody cared what I looked like or where I was or whatever. They just sort of, you know, my identity was what I wrote, what I did. And, and, and so that actually got me into the tech space, even though I didn't have a formal technology training or computer science training at the time, I was really just a kid. But that sort of, sort of really sort of played around with the early days of what is your identity? What, mm -hmm. what does it mean to have sort of to be digital? And that evolved later on when I was playing sort of early multi-user dungeon from MUDs basically type games eventually to general games. And of course my involvement with Atari meant that I was play, sort of working on game related projects as well. So all of that evolved, I would say it's kind of metaverse precursor, right? Yeah. Uh, but but one, of the, one of the biggest challenges was around owning something digitally. And for those who have been in the game space um, for a little while, will recognize that there's always a very jarring, disappointing moment when you have to take down a game for business reasons, right? I mean, in, 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 in for the smallest studios, it's a matter of just economic survival. For the largest studios, it's often the case it doesn't make enough profit. So it's a, a sort of opportunity, opportunity cost. Right? But either way, we shut down games and, and effectively it's kind of a massive betrayal to the users. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that uh, we also saw when we moved, we were very early movers from free to play uh, in the mobile side, perhaps one of the first ones. I think when IAP started coming out on the App Store, within three to six months, we had the first products out in that area with Pretty Pet Salon. And that was actually an early, early success for us. And with that model, the benefit was, of course, bringing in new players in a kind of almost try before you buy kind of mode, right. right? And that was really the business innovation. But as the business grew, it necessitated by making more money to basically extract more value from the end user. And eventually the model became more predatory. And that kind of didn't sit right over time because of course people who design games sort of say it's to be make it fun and entertaining, but deep down in the business model, it's around how do we make as much money yeah. as we can from the end user. And you know, you, you start getting into some divisions and all the criticisms that people had about free to play were not really true necessarily in the beginning, but started to play out because people needed to make more and more money because of the cost of discovery, because of the centralization of platforms, because of the cost of advertising and marketing. And, um, and, and next thing you know, uh, we're all basically sort of extracting as much value from end users, putting nothing back. And so, so that was sort of some of the impetus on the thinking that true digital ownership will change this uh, and create a, a better business model. And then eventually lead to the ownership of our digital life. And when you say digital ownership, I guess that 
inherently means like once you own something, you can pour it's portable and it's reusable. And that's in a sense the the problem here, isn't it? It's when those games go offline, you don't really have that portability. And I think that's the, the real problem we're trying to solve, right? Well, it's a number of problems, right? I think there is a uh, sort of, let's call it short-term and then there's a long-term problem, right? The short-term problem around interoperability and is really a case of utility to demonstrate right. that the non-fungible tokens have value. Property rights are not just in ownership, it's how it's being used as well, right. right? I mean, not everything is going to be a Beeple, right? Not everything's a Mona Lisa, but for the majority of how we see NFTs is going to be utility, kind of like how we have physical relationships with physical objects or real estate too, right? You can live in it, you can use it, and the value will be determined by its potential in the utility that it has. I think that's that's going to be quite normal. And if it has more utility because it has more usability, i.e. interoperability, then the value of those NFTs may be better. And it also then forces essentially other uh, sort of, let's say game companies or, or platforms to support them because it means that you want to access essentially that latent network effect that resides within the community that own these NFTs, right? When you bring in an NFT into a project, you're not just bringing in uh, sort of, you know, one item, right. you're actually bringing the entire community that owns these items as a collective as well. And so you're really making it compatible for them as a base. And that's one of the incredibly powerful things. So that's a short term, but the long term is really about owning digital rights which leads to basically a whole digital rights, digital property movement, which ultimately leads to us actually appreciating uh, sort of our digital life and our digital governance. Because right now we don't, right? We willingly give it up to the platforms. And as a result of that, we have a case where we are basically digital serfs living in digital kingdoms, not based on any kind of rules owned by sort of, you know, by the way we define it, but entirely by those of the platforms by their terms of service. And we willingly gave that up because we didn't understand its value, right? And I think it's best demonstrated when you ask someone, do you value your privacy? And everyone says, of course, yes. And then you ask the next question, do you still use WhatsApp? And most people say yes, <laughs> right? So clearly you don't appreciate it as much as you ought to. And I think that's because we don't know how to value it. And I think digital property rights, much like our physical property rights is the beginning explanation to what it means to have true ownership not just in the assets, but in your digital life. Yeah, it, it uh, and and what like that word utility is such a, it's such a, a common sense term, but also very very at the beginning. We're such at the embryonic stages of what that means. Like for for now, I'm seeing people staking NFTs, and that's the utility. And then you know, there's there's uh, places like crypto voxels where there's a inherent nat- uh, utility to it, where you can just view. A digital piece of art and that's in itself a utility but i think uh, us as an industry we're, we're trying to discover all of these different use cases of utility right we are but i think one of the beautiful things about nfts is if you design them properly and so then actually use cases will be designed and created by people who have incredible input and we don't even know who they are right right i mean it's basically a kind of user-generated movement across all digital assets if if NFTs are going to be successful, we think that the relationships uh, with, with NFTs has to be similar to our relationship with open source, right? I mean, if you remember CompuServe, then you remember the days of closed source, which is basically all the all software that was out there. Yeah. And you know, how has the world changed when we went from closed source to open source? 
you know, you know, code was effectively openly composable by other people. They contributed, they obviously took from it, but it, it ended up providing this opportunity for a small outfit, a small startup to compete with the largest of companies because you had all of that knowledge accessible. But the large companies couldn't shut you off because the network effect that was inherent in all open source code was something nobody could cut themselves off against, including countries like China, who would prefer not to have it because of some of the potentially subversive material that was there in the form of code. They had to allow it because that intellectual knowledge and the property that was there, intellectual property that was there, was just something that was just too powerful to ignore. Right. And with non-fungible tokens, we see it the same way, which is that you know, if we are going to be successful and good at designing these NFTs, then these will have incredible network effects that you cannot ignore. You must have incorporate them in your in your sort of games or in your metaverses, in your products, whatever it is that you do. And that's what we think uh, is already kind of happening, how people are offering loan services, mm-hmm. mortgaging, yield designs, you know, all, all these things which, you know, we as, you know, call it creators of NFTs and metaverses are not involved in. Third parties are offering direct benefits to this. And so I think we've just hit the beginning of this uh, sort of incredible, really, I think, creative revolution that, that's taking place on all of our digital assets. Creative revolution. I love that. Um, now you talk about network effects. Now that's a that's a touchy subject because it essentially means you're picking a network, and um, meaning is your NFT on Ethereum? Is your NFT on Wax? Is your NFT on Ronin? Right? Like that's a touchy subject, and people you can only go as far as your protocol. And do you see like in in a year's time, in two years time, in five years time that it should be one NFT across all of these platforms with bridges. Like, how is this going to play out? So we like to take a slightly different view to this, right? Which is while I accept that obviously there will be multiple protocols that are out there. And our hope is that there will be many, 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 um, because we think it's great to have choice because to us, protocols represent community, right? Right. And you want to be able to offer products and services to whichever community suits you. But, the way that we think of it is that the network effect is inherent in the NFT itself. When you say that, do you mean IP? Like the, the IP, like if it's F1 or if it's Alien World or something like that, do you mean? No, I mean everything. It's IP, but it's also community. When you end up owning an F1 asset, are you just owning the brand? Or do you actually have a participation in all of the network effect that F1 Delta Time in this case represents? And we think it is, it's all of that. Because whether if, if someone makes you know uh, our cars compatible for another metaverse, it inherently means that, that that sort of compatibility means that all of the other assets in F1 Delta Time also become compatible in whatever metaverse that's being integrated. So it's importing that network effect. And every person who owns the F1 Delta Time assets gets to participate in the growth of the network effect that might be F1 Delta Time or can be Sandbox or can be Axie Infinity. It doesn't really matter, right? right. Whatever it is. It's participating. And I think you see this effect already in the physical world, right? When people have a desire to buy a certain kind of shoe or a certain kind of watch, you know, what are they buying? When you buy a Rolex, what are you buying? Are you buying the diamonds on the watch or are you buying what it symbolizes? You're buying association of everyone else who has a Rolex. Right. You're buying sort of relationships and, and a connection, uh, which in itself is a, is a network effect. The reputation is a network effect. So Rolex was the original... Rolex was the original CryptoPunk is what you're saying. Well, yeah, I'm not sure what the original is uh, in that sense. But yes, CryptoPunk is a great example because that is one where the network effect 
is there. And then, of course, with MeBits and everything, it's sort of an evolution of that thinking. But the point being that you build network effects around the NFT itself and not necessarily protocol. The protocol to us, to us feels a little bit more like a necessary commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think these ones are critical to be all over the place because there's a form of decentralization that's going to be there. But we think much like our relationship with physical assets, the ability to have them float freely across all sorts of places is what's important here. Kind of like free trade and sort of the freedom of the assets. It's not just about decentralizing a protocol. It's decentralizing uh, sort of the decentralization of all protocols, including having more than one protocol out there so that we basically have these choices. And it, it, you know, I view protocols almost like countries and NFTs as product or assets, right? right? That's it. And so they should be able to move freely through bridges from right. place to place. And if you choose to go from one place to another, then so be it, right? That's, that's, that's where you want to build. It's, it's entirely up to you. But it doesn't, you know, I don't believe that it would detract from your community, at least with what I can imagine for you, the sandbox, F1 Delta time or, or Axie, whatever, if you're on another protocol. Like if you're, if you're, what's more powerful? The fact that F1 Delta time is on Ethereum or the fact that I actually have an F1 car where I can play my favorite game, for instance. I think it's, I think it's more sort of the latter than the fact that it sits on a protocol or another. So you, that's, a, that's a great answer. I love it. And, and thank you for that. And, and the way you think about it with the community, I love that as well. So you have these communities and some of them are represented by board apes, Nebits, and, and uh, all of these different things. And you have the first of them, like you have a limited supply, 10,000, or even in some cases, uh, 3,000 of, of some of them. So what you're saying is like these communities could end up in a year, two years, three years time, they could grow and keep growing, but then they have these digital property rights for this diminishing supply of things. So the, the first thing that pops into my mind is like, these, these first set of things are gonna be extremely valuable because they're the, the embryonic stages of, of a community. Yes, so I think it's an interesting question because of course, when you think about the history in the beginning of you know, blockchain and really crypto, it started effectively with Bitcoin, right? Right. And what was Bitcoin, right? I mean, Bitcoin was obviously, you know, fixed value supply, uh, you know, and, and a promise not to tamper with it. So inherently in the thinking of Bitcoin was one of equality, right? In terms of we have equal access, equal opportunity, and those who got into it early, they, they benefit from this. And, you know, it grows a fixed community that ends up becoming, you know, <laughs> whether Bitcoin maximalists or whatever it is, right? Uh, they end up becoming big fans of this idea of equality. And we, we know many people in the world who believe that that is how the world should be run. And that's one, one let's call it one system. Right? But for the same reason why I think there cannot be one chain is because we don't all have a singular belief system. And so the models that we see with fixed supply, like CryptoPunks and MeBits and, and whichever, right, that is out there, that is, a, that is a functioning model, but I think is one centered broadly around people who want to, who, who believe in equality uh, and, and who want to sort of build that out. But there's another concept here, which I think is also starting to develop and people think in different models. And that's one centered more perhaps around equity, right? mm. you know, and, and, and the model around equity is different because in that sense, you want to maybe be more inclusive over time. And if someone had a knowledge disadvantage because they didn't get early, then how do you, how do you bring them back in? Right. And, you know, governments solve this problem or try to solve this problem in the form of taxes, right? Because taxes is sort of that equalizer that way to redistribute the gains you made so that others can participate. So you don't create a division in society. 
But you know, even in today's world, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who say, nah, I don't think that that's too close to communism because socialism is communism, right? It, by some definitions, according to some. But then you look at the models in Europe, you know, in the Scandic regions or, you know, in part in, in Europe where you could say it's very and quite socialist, but maybe more balanced or maybe not, right? But it has heavier taxes, arguably more equitable societies, right? You know, what is right, which is wrong, which is right? That's a hard question. I don't think there is a one size fits all, which is why it's important that we have all of these choices. So I think the design of these uh, NFT supply systems is not just a design in terms of here's what we want to do because it's the general formula. It's a philosophical and uh, sort of social studies belief in terms of how the world should operate in my universe. Because the reality is that CryptoPunks are amazing and I'm, I'm very fortunate to, to, to own a few only because I was early. But I don't think it's accessible to anyone else, right? right? And is that right as well? Is that how we're going to grow the crypto community by excluding others? Not at all, right? Well, not everyone so, can have a Rolex too, right? Yeah, so. Correct, exactly. And so it depends. So you will have the Rolexes or whatever type that basically says when I've achieved the status in my life, when I think I've got something, when I own a Rolex or I own a CryptoPunk, right? It's the same <laughs> thing. It's like, a, I own this and, and, and I'm someone in that space, you know, in that exclusive club of 10,000, for example, right? Or, um, or you just sort of, you know, decide that, you know, you, you want to build a model that's more equitable and, and, and work with different ones where perhaps there isn't a fixed supply cap, right? And, and in essence, you could say, you know, uh, if you compare sort of the Bitcoin philosophy and the Ethereum philosophy, right? In some ways, they are divergent that way because right. there is no supply cap, right? And, and any, anyone can mine and, you know, what happens when you start staking, that's going to be an interesting one. But anyway, point being that I think it, the, the systems are, are different. Our general belief on where NFTs will go, broadly speaking, is that while there will be lots of them that are very valuable, I do believe that many of the NFTs, I think to me, this, this will be the last year where the NFTs that are, let's call it, designed in a certain period have value just because they're designed in that period, right? Especially if you talk about 2018, 2019 NFTs, because they're truly OG status, yeah. right? Just in terms of, uh, you know, like kind of like, you know, if you bought art, it, that was from the Renaissance period. Yeah. They didn't have to be. They didn't have to be Leonardo da Vinci's. It, yeah. It's, it's just oh, it's from the Renaissance. Geez, it's it's it's, it's it has some value, right? Yeah. You know, that's more than what it was acquired for. But I think the future NFTs where the value will be much greater are the ones that will have a history or record of what has happened to them or who owned it or what what they did. Kind of like right. how we have our physical relationships. You know, like you know who autographed something, who owned it, you know, or what did I do to it, or what did my family do with it. Right. These are the relationships that have value to our NFTs, which may never be sold, but will be super special to us. Yeah, it's like that old Seinfeld episode about somebody owning John Voight's car or something like that, you know, and, it, and that holds that holds, you know, just because we have transparency, it, that holds value in of itself. Um, so, you know, I, I'm a sports card collector. I was growing up as a sports card collector, and it's one of the reasons why I was attracted to Crypto Slam and joining that team. Um, they used to uh, print cards like crazy and we didn't know what the supply was. Uh, I think I, I saw a documentary where the Ken Griffey Jr. upper deck rookie card, um, it became popular and then they just started printing a whole bunch of them and we didn't know how much was out there. But I am sure the guy behind us in, in the, the, the card store shop would pull out a whole stack of them, put one out into the display case and he had a whole stack underneath 
and and Upper Deck just kept printing them. And now you're in this space where we know exactly how many uh, tops MLB cards were printed. We know exactly how many tops garbage fail cards were printed. And for example, like the 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 series one set, there's 110,000 cards. That's it. The original series one, there could have been millions, right? So it, there's that too as well. Like from a collector point of view, there's not that many sets from these early ones. Yes, but I think one of the things that's different about the physical sets is that the physical sets had within it inherently, not necessarily by design, a attrition model, which is just wear and tear and, right. and loss and everything else, right? Uh, so, so by that account, you know, if you look at our relationship with stamps, right, the rarity of the stamps is very much determined by what you can still access in the world because most of them were used, right? And right. only a small number of them were maintained. In the digital world, we don't have that. And in a digital world, actually, the asset could last forever. In fact, if it's an NFT on the blockchain, theoretically, it will, unless you burn it or something. But generally speaking, or you lose you know, your keys. Uh, yeah, or you lose your keys. But the level of attrition you, that happens this way is very different, right? It's, it's, it's not the same as, oh, I forgot it in my cupboard, or I left it here, or I moved <laughs> my out. Threw it out. Like, yeah, exactly, right? I mean, the, 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 the chances of uh, sort of your baseball cards getting lost during the course of time is far, far greater than whatever sits in your wallet. Right? So I think, I think that therefore changes our relationship in terms of that. And so there has to be a thinking around how you design for, for the aspect of value. But you know, value is a very relative personal and emotional thing. Right? And ownership, if you think about it, at the base of it is also, you know, with, with blockchain, you can verify that ownership. But in itself, it's also kind of a virtual concept because at, at the end of the day, you know, how, who determines that ownership? I mean, if you live in a, in a country that is overthrown, whatever you thought you owned, you own, don't own either. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's, you know, and, and, and in the earliest of days, we proved ownership just because of consensus amongst a community that was just sitting around. We didn't know how to read or write. We just said, you own that. Fine. It's your cow. Okay, fine. Right. And that was it. In our small community, that's how we built consensus. Right. And now, you know, because of technology, we can scale that out and be more definitive about it. But at the end of the day, the principles are still exactly the same. Interesting. Very interesting. Can you share like what your thoughts are on some of their better projects out there? I know you may obviously um, have a few favorites given your investments, but um, something that you see that you truly are excited about and, um, and if you can share any upcoming plans or anything that you can reveal. So first, I mean, you know, We've done over 60 investments. So that's a little bit like saying, yeah. just pick your favorite child. Right. I know you're <laughs> going to say that. It's, it's, it's hard to do, right? Right. Um, and I think outside of some obvious ones, whether it's like Sandbox or X Infinity or, you know, uh, you know, F1 Delta Time or whichever, there's so many of them out there that, that we could name. But, but let, me, let me maybe highlight it with a couple of things that are interesting that are being developed because, you know, that, that what people are trying to sort of push the envelope on slightly differently. And um, sort of one, one example here, if I was to pick one of our own internal projects first, is the experiment around Tower. Now, Tower isn't a sophisticated blockchain project at all because it doesn't come from that. It's the experiment of how do we take a community of gamers who know nothing about blockchain and move them onto blockchain, mm-hmm. right? And so, and so because that's one of the ways in which we're trying to create impact, which is to how do we bring adoption further? 
because crypto natives will grow just because the market grows, but how can we accelerate that? And so with two projects, which is Tower and Quid, that's the experiment question. Right? And with Tower, the idea was, you know, we never did a token sale. We issued a token that you can earn, essentially farm by playing the game, which is free to play. And then through the ownership of these tokens, you can then decide governance on the game itself. Okay. So it creates kind of a fly loop. And of course, many of the early gamers were like, let's keep selling because, you know, that's great, some money. Uh, and we saw traffic increase and so on. And then people started buying and sort of appreciating that there's maybe long-term value because they love the game and want to have a future direction of where the game goes and created a little bit of a market. Now, of course, it's early days and many things aren't quite clear, but there, there is some liquidity that's now building. There's a community that's being sort of, you know, learning about crypto. And the impact, if a model like that works, is I think perhaps even more powerful than sort of building a new game where everyone comes in because maybe existing games can port over to crypto. And that could be a, a, really mass, a really big mass movement if we do that across the board, right? And with Quid, it's kind of similar, but they did that with collectibles from the pop culture because they have like the license from Marvel and Disney and a whole bunch of things. And it's not on crypto yet, but they have these mintables as NFTs, kind of like Nifty Gateway almost, right? Mm -hmm. Where some of the assets can be turned into NFTs. But the important thing is the deposits are cash. The players are not crypto people, but with the crypto guys also in there buying these NFTs, mixing it together in a play-to-earn fashion where people are basically playing quid to unearth these rare collectibles and then selling them. You, they, you know, they've created a cash market out of a virtual marketplace. And really people start asking questions around what is an NFT really? And yeah. maybe I need to have a wallet and maybe I need to know about this. That's kind of exciting, right? So, so I think, I think you know, generally I would say that where we want to focus our space on for the time being is what can we do to deliver mass adoption? Right. I mean, uh, because I think that's the part that is missing a little bit for the time being. You know, we, we're, we're, you know it's amazing how we have amazing NFT projects that are, you know, now that we're reaching 100,000 100, plus users in various projects, right. it's like, wow, that's like great, that's, that's amazing, right? But in the gaming world, that's like uh, ho-hum, right? It's, right. It's, it's, it doesn't mean anything. And so we got we, we we still have a work cut out for us. And and speaking of those hundred thousand users a day, that's probably Axie you're referring to, and and they're doing some good work at, with sales. I know they're topping the the, the leaderboard at Crypto Slam there. Um, yeah. What what is it going to take to go from one hundred thousand users a day to a million? Like, what does that look like? Well, I think there's multiple, and I think I think this is the year in which we'll see it. Wow. Uh, okay. Go to those, right? But there's a few ways. I think it won't just be one. It'll be sort of a flurry of them, right? And I think it'll come from two angles, right? One angle will be going crypto first, right? Kind of like what's happening with Axie Infinity or even even Sandbox, even though Sandbox is a little different because the game itself isn't 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 out, so the DAUs is not that high. But the the people who basically own Sand, basically sort of own NFTs, is now approaching that number as well, but it's more passive because it's about land ownership. So it's a little different, right? But you, so, so you have multiple games out there that are sort of, sort of moving in that, in, moving in that direction. But I think where uh, we believe that there's going to be maybe a broader adoption is actually going to happen from the metaverses that already exist, essentially called the metaverse and a half, right? Because they're not truly full metaverses, like existing games that are out there. And they end up basically porting themselves over to uh, sort of true digital ownership, and you end up having a mass movement into, into the world of blockchain and NFTs, almost sort of in a, in a sort of a Trojan horse type of way. I think, you know, we'll see some of these um, 
certainly if we can help it, because that's kind of where we're I mean, how we're involved. I mean, you know, we have several several uh, games within our within our stable that have you know in total in aggregate uh, we represent about 15 million um, active users, yeah, but of course not on blockchain. And so the whole point is how can we move them into blockchain? And that's not easy, right? Just because people don't get it, people don't understand it, people think, you know, whichever, right? All the issues that we see today yeah. about people being skeptical, you know, gamers are sometimes amongst the hardest to convince, right? But we think it's easier because they should theoretically already understand what a digital asset is, at least in theory, right? That's, that's, that's the basis of this. But the thing is, if we can succeed in bringing that in, then, you know, those numbers will balloon very quickly. But of course, it doesn't mean that they just play our game or that Axie Infinity players only play Axie Infinity. You know, it, 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 it just opens the market broader and wider uh, as a result. I mean, look at NBA Top Shot and what did that do? NBA Top Shot didn't just create a space for people in, you know, interested in, in right. collecting NBA Top Shots. It just brought all that entire community to look at other collectible yeah. projects as well. Yeah, and we, we, we experienced that. A lot of our visitors on the site sort of crossed and started collecting other items, other projects. Right. So, well, that was awesome. I, I think this has been a really cool conversation and I don't want to stretch it out too long, but I'd love to have you on again another time to kind of dive deep into the more, uh, how things are progressing. And I'd love to have you on again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Yat. I'll talk again soon. Stay on.